We're in the book of Acts, and we are studying uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We're in the 17th chapter, and we're going to have fun with the message today. I've entitled it, Are You Sure? Are You Sure? Uh, We're going to be reading out of Acts 17, verses 10 through 15. So out of love, respect, and esteem for God's Word, please stand to your feet. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Many of the Jews believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the Word of God at Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. But the brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast. But Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Berean Christians and for the life lessons that we will learn from their example. Thank you for their love and dedication to the Holy Scriptures and the study of the Word of God. Thank you for the noble character that they possessed, that we can also be men and women of noble character. Speak to us, Holy Spirit, now. We ask and pray in the names above every name, the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and all the people of God said, you may be seated. All right, church family, what are the things in life you can count on other than death and taxes? So here's a few of them that I found, right? The toast will fall jam side down every time. It just will for whatever reason. You can't dress for the weather. If you're ready for the rain, it doesn't rain. If you're not ready for the rain, it does rain, right? Uh, You'll get sick on your day off. Things you can count on, right? Uh, It'll rain just after you wash your car. Paths of love will never run smoothly. The special someone that you want to text you back never does. The other person you don't, well, they keep blowing up your phone with text messages. Number six, uh, it's an important delivery will come just as soon as you step in the shower. You know, the one that you have to sign for. Red lights all the way to that meeting if you're running late for the meeting. You you won't get a green light. (laughs) Uh, You'll always look for the worst. Oh, no. You'll always look your worst when you bump into your ex. (laughs) A lot of exes out there, I guess. Anyway, uh, click on send, then immediately you spot the mistake. And then, uh, number 10, you'll lose stuff in that safe place. You all have a safe place where you put stuff, and then you're like, where did I put that? Where's the safe place where I put my stuff? So now I have a file in my notes that where everything's important, <laughs> I know where I put it. It's all right there. Uh, so I won't forget. But the one thing that you can count on, hands down, in this volatile world, the one thing you can depend on in this ever-changing world that you can count your life, your soul, your future on is this. God's Word is consistent and will never change and is eternal. Amen? That's the one thing we can count on is the Word of God. Here's how Jesus said it in Matthew 24, 35. Let's read it out loud together. 
Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. We can depend on the Word of God. Is there anything in your life that you absolutely love and are devoted to and are willing to pay any price for that love and that devotion? Do you hold on to something, maybe your faith, and does your faith mean more to you than anything or anyone in all of this world? You know, Jesus said, if you don't hate your mother and father, if you don't hate your spouse, if you don't hate your children, in comparison to your love for him, he's not saying you should hate those people. Matter of fact, he said you're to honor your father and your mother. You're to, husbands love your wives, and wives respect your husbands. But in comparison to our love for Jesus, if your love for him is not so great as though it, it, it compares in contrast to hatred for the very people you love the most, you're not worthy to be my disciple, Jesus said. Those are some radical words spoken by Jesus. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, one of the greatest apologists, one of the greatest authors, one of the brightest minds that ever lived, he wrote a book a long time ago called The Ball and the Cross. It was a story, or it was really a parable, a parable of two men, Turnbull and McClan. Turnbull was the atheist. McClan was the Roman Catholic, the devout Christian. In Chesterton's story, uh, the atheist wrote a, he was an editor of a newspaper, and he wrote a scathing article disrespecting the Virgin Mary. So what McClan did in this story, in this parable, is he took a brick and he threw it through the newspaper window, busting the window. Well, the entire story is kind of a humorous story of these two individuals trying to meet one another in an old-fashioned duel because they hated one another. And the story unfolds where they crisscross the British Isles, right, because the, the context of the story is in Britain. They crisscross the British Isles trying to do harm to one another, but never able to really succeed in harming one another. They eventually become fugitives. They are apprehended. They are arrested. And then they are thrown in an insane asylum because society deemed these two men to be insane. Now, here's the bait and here's the switch in the story. Chesterton, who was a great apologist for the faith, was not arguing that we should believe in our, that we should hold our beliefs so strongly that we are willing to commit violence against, against others for those beliefs. He was not underscoring that point. But here's how the story, the switch and bait occurs. At the end, Society says these two guys, because one believed in his atheism so strongly, the other believed in his Christianity so strongly, society deemed these guys to be crazy and threw them in the asylum. But in the story, the switch and bait of the story is actually Chesterton's um, uh, his premise is not that these two men were crazy, but the rest of society itself was crazy because society does not hold their religious convictions and their beliefs as strongly as they should. So really, in Chesterton's thought, many Christians today, the world, applaud you as long as you don't let that Christianity go to your head, as long as you don't take it too seriously, as long as you don't allow your Christian faith to alter your lifestyle, 
As long as you're willing to go along and get along and with the rest of the world, think like them, they will applaud your Christianity or your faith. But as soon as your lifestyle changes, your behavior changes, you become a moral person, you become a compassionate soul where you love others, but you care about the eternal, the, the eternal destination of others, and you take your faith seriously, the world will write you off. Think about many of you. When you gave your life to Christ, your family thought you'd lost your mind. I know my family. You know, my dad, God rest his soul, uh, when as long as I was carousing, drinking, partying, chasing girls, he thought I was normal. As soon as I got radically saved, started carrying my Bible everywhere I went, started reading my Bible, started going to church two and three times a week, my dad sincerely sat me down and said, Carl, I'm concerned about you. Your stepmother and I feel as though you're in a cult. <laughs> I said, no, Dad. My eyes aren't crisscrossed. Look at them. Look at them. I'm not on anything anymore, Dad. Right? 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 I just fell in love with Jesus. And I want to preach him to the, to the, to the ends of the earth. Man, I was, I was like on fire for the Lord, right? I wanted to preach Jesus to everyone I met. When my mom, <laughs> when she discovered these, these changes in my life, and that I was no longer going to the particular church I was raised in. She said, are you going to one of those holy roller churches? <laughs> Whatever a holy roller church is like, you know. I said, well, I guess I am, Mom, right? right? What do you believe in so strongly that because you take it to heart and you take it sincerely, that the rest of the world might look at you and think, you're, you're off your rocker, that you, you've lost it all, right? That the lights are on, but nobody is home. That's the Berean Christians. They took their faith seriously. They were of noble character because of it. Once again, verses 10 and 11, it says, As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. That was their custom. Go to the Jewish synagogue. There's a bunch of believers there, Jews and Gentiles, converted to Judaism, or Jews who were devout in their faith. And Paul would go and he would preach Christ to them from the Holy Scriptures, from the Old Testament. That's all that they had at that time. Now, the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians. Now, why were these people, the Bereans, of more of noble character? It's because they received the word, the message that Paul was preaching. They received that message with great eagerness, and then they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. So let's talk about nobility for a moment. What does it mean to be a person of noble character? Is noble character something you inherit? Is noble character a result of your race or your culture or your social economic standing? Not according to the Bible. Uh, to be a person of noble character, and this Greek word means well-born or high-born. So apparently the Bereans were in this category, this elite category of noble men and women. They were high-born or they were well-born. There are people in the Bible that are considered noble. Uh, Boaz is considered a man of nobility in the book of Ruth, whereas Ruth also, a Moabitess, she was considered a person of noble character. 
Uh, Proverbs 12.4 says, A wife of noble character is her husband's crown. Proverbs 31 verse 10 says, A wife of noble character is hard to find. She's worth far more than rubies. Jesus told a parable of a certain individual that he described as a nobleman. A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive a kingdom. So the Bible talks of nobility. Matter of fact, the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.26, not many noble, not many mighty, not many wise come to the faith because of their spiritual pride, because of their elevated view of themselves. They don't feel they need to repent of their sins or they need to follow this Jesus of Nazareth. So the Bible speaks of nobility and it speaks of these Berean Christians as being men and women of noble character not because of their race, not because of their gender, not because of their social economic standing, but because of what they believed, because of how they behaved. You and I can all be noble men and noble women. We can all have noble character. We can all be high-born and high-brow, not because of who our earthly parents or grandparents or ancestral line may be, but because of who we are in Christ. That as soon as you become a Christian, you become a son and a daughter of God. You are born again, and once you're born again, you become a brand new person on the inside. You become a king and a priest. You become someone of nobility, not as it says in John's gospel, chapter 1 and verse 13, we are adopted in the beloved. We are born into the family of God, but get this, it goes on to say, not by blood, nor of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but we have been born of God. That means you are royalty. The royal blood of heaven flows through your veins. When you walk down the street, you are somebody because of who Christ is in you. Wayne Dyer said, true nobility isn't about being better than someone else. It's about being better than you used to be. You and I aren't where we want to be, but we're not where we used to be, but we are headed to where God wants us to be as we're being changed from glory to glory, and we're going from faith to faith, and the, the special work of sanctification is occurring in our lives where we're becoming more and more like Christ. So, the Berean Christians, how do we develop nobility? Let's talk about the developing of nobility. Noble character manifests itself in four ways. Number one, eagerness. Once again, verse 11 of Acts 17, it says, these Berean Christians, they received the message with great eagerness. The importance of of eagerness, great eagerness, literally all eagerness. These Berean Christians, when Paul began to preach Christ to them from the Scriptures, their hearts were open, their ears were open, and they were eager to receive the message, the, the truth of the gospel. There was this, that the term eagerness carries the idea of rushing forward, Rushing forward, you know, eagerness. You know, what's that day, that, that the famous shopping day out of the year, Black Monday, Black Friday, Black Saturday, what is it, Black Sabbath, whatever, what, what do they call that? Thank you, whatever. You see those crazy people? Not you, but see, they sleep out in front of Walmart. Like, really? You're that excited about Walmart? Right? And, and, they're, and they're waiting in line, and then as soon as the doors are open, man, with eagerness, they rush in there, Right? to save $20 on a color television set. Are you kidding me? <laughs> wow. But 
The point is, these people are eager. Hey, where's our eagerness for the things of God? How, how eager on a meter of eagerness? One being like not very eager at all. Ten being like really eager, right? Where are we in that meter? Are we eager to hear and receive the truths of God's Word? Psalm 119, verse 36, it says, Give me an eagerness for your laws rather than a love for money. So many people are, are eager, and they're eager to, to, to worship money. They have a love for, for money, especially in our society. Well, David said, I, I want to have an eagerness for your word, for your laws, like people have an eagerness or a love for money. Proverbs 6, 16 talks about eagerness. It says, for there are six things the Lord hates, no seven, haughtiness, lying, murder, plotting evil, eagerness to do wrong, a false witness sowing discord among brothers. So people in our society have an eagerness to do wrong. We should have an eagerness after God, an eagerness after his word. One ancient philosopher said, do not seek illumination unless you seek it as a man whose hair is on fire seeks a pond. I like that. And you imagine, like, if you were on fire and there was water to be found, you would, you would be seeking after that water to douse that fire as quickly as possible. Does that describe our, our spiritual intensity for the things of God? Are we, are we eager? Now, next week, Lord willing, right, we'll be in Acts 17 continuing. Remember, Paul leaves Berea, and the, the brothers, I like how the translation we read says, the brothers <laughs> sent him to the coast. He travels 200 miles to get to Athens. He gets to Athens. The guys that escorted him there leave to go back to Berea to make sure and send the message to Timothy and Silas, get to Athens to meet up with Paul as quickly as possible. So for a short period of time, Paul, the most important Christian that's ever lived, <laughs> is in Athens all alone. And he's waiting. We'll preach on this next week. But I'm going to preach it a little bit right now. He's waiting. And he sees that the entire city is given over to idolatry. And his spirit is stirred within him because of that. So he goes and he preaches on a famous place, one of the most famous spots in the world called Mars Hill. It's where all the philosophers and the Stoics would gather and they would talk about all these new concepts and new ideas. Paul, a Jew, shows up there. And he preaches a message. One of the most important messages ever preached. And he doesn't quote a single scripture. Why? Because he's not in the Jewish synagogue. These people don't even believe in the Bible, much less know the Bible. So he's not even going to quote the Bible, but he quotes one of their famous pagan poets. And then he ends the message preaching Jesus, his death, his resurrection, and his soon judgment. And as soon as he started preaching Jesus to them, they thought, who's this crazy babbler, right? They, they, they like wrote him, they wrote him off, but he didn't compromise the truth. He got to the truth, but he quoted one of their pagan poets. I want to quote a a non-believer, Lao Tzu. He's like the founder of Taoism. Listen to what he said. When superior people, superior people hear of the way, they carry it out with diligence. When middling people hear of the way, sometimes seems to be there, sometimes not. When lesser people hear of the way, they ridicule it greatly. If they didn't laugh at it, it wouldn't be the way. Now, Lao Tzu is referring to Taoism. But how many of you know that in the Bible, Christians were called people of the way? In the book of Acts, 
On several occasions, Christians were called people of the way. Kind of a play on words. The way to Lao Tzu is Taoism. We don't believe in Taoism. We believe in Jesus. We're people of the way. But he lists the three types of adherents, superiors, middling, and lesser. You know there are three types of Christians. You could say three classes of Christians. Yeah, you heard me right. In the Bible, there are baby Christians. And the Bible, and there's nothing, there's nothing to be ashamed about. If you're a baby Christian, that's awesome. And you desire the sincere milk of the word that you might grow thereby. It's awesome being a baby Christian. Just you can't stay a baby Christian. You know, if three years into your walk with Jesus, you still are drinking milk, something's wrong. You need to be graduating to the meat of God's word, okay? So baby Christians, then there are carnal Christians. Paul said, I wanted to speak to you as spiritual men, but I could not because I had to speak unto you as carnal men because of your carnality and because you walk as mere men. So there are baby Christians, there are carnal Christians, and then there are spiritually minded, mature Christians. How many of you know we want to move out of being a baby Christian We don't want to go into being a carnal Christian, and we want to become a mature, spiritual-minded follower of Jesus Christ, growing in our faith, and there's a sense of eagerness and diligence about us. All right, number one, to develop noble character, there has to be a sense of eagerness. You have to be eager in your faith, eager to come to church, eager to read your Bible, eager to serve, eager to share Christ, an eagerness. Number two, examination. Once again, verse 11 of that same verse, it says that they were examining the Scriptures to see if they supported what Paul was preaching to them. So number one, they were eager. Number two, these Berean Christians, they examined the Bible. It's not enough to have enthusiasm because enthusiasm can lead to gullibility. God wants you to be enthusiastic about learning what the Bible teaches, but not gullible about what the Bible teaches Now, imagine these Berean Christians, (laughs) the most famous Christian that's ever lived, the strongest Christian that's ever lived, the greatest theologian that's ever walked the face of the earth, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, 13, at least 13 books of the New Testament the Apostle Paul wrote. And these Berean Christians were not taking at face value the things that Paul was preaching to them. They had to make sure and verify it for themselves in the Old Testament Scripture. Let me know, you got to like people like that, that just don't, you know, gullibly, naively accept everything that that people say from behind a pulpit or behind a microphone or in a Bible study or that they read in a book. These Berean Christians were not, they were not praising Paul's oratory skills. They were not excited about Paul because he tells the best stories. He has the best voice. You know, they weren't weren't praising Paul because of his sneakers. There's an Instagram you could follow that uh, this guy uh, humorously, he, he, uh, (laughs) he, he takes pictures of preachers in their tennis shoes because now it's popular to preach in tennis shoes. Some of these preachers out there, they're preaching in $5,000 tennis shoes. I didn't know $5,000 tennis shoes even existed. So I had to take a picture of that Instagram picture so I can enlarge it. I'm like, those don't look like $5,000 tennis shoes. 
But sure enough, they're 5,000. See, the Berean Christians weren't like, man, Paul's hip. Yeah, Paul's cool. Yeah, look at the language that Paul uses, man. He's really relating to the millennials of his day. No, they said, is what he's saying true? Can we base it on the word of God? They were eager to hear it, but they also examined it to make sure that it was thus saith the Lord. We need to make sure that what people are preaching to us is based wholly on the word of God because heaven and earth will pass away, but not one word until all be fulfilled. John chapter 5, verse 39, look at what Jesus said. He said, you search and investigate and pour over the scriptures diligently, which he was applauding. You should do that. Because you suppose and trust that you have eternal life through them, which you do. (laughs) But, he said, and these very scriptures testify about me. Can you imagine the Pharisees and the Sadducees were studying the Old Testament prophets and they were searching and they were examining and they were investigating and they were pouring over the scriptures and they were missing the most important part of what was written in the Old Testament because everything in the Bible points to one person. That's Jesus Christ, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the bright and the morning star and the soon coming king every sacrifice every feast all of that in the old testament was a type and a shadow of what was to come the substance in jesus even paul when he was saul of tarshish he studied the scriptures he was a pharisee of pharisees concerning the law he was flawless and yet he missed he missed the most important part of the bible the most important part of the old testament it all points to jesus So thank God for these Berean Christians. They searched to make sure what Paul was preaching was accurate. Like a merchant seeks the pearl of great price in the story that Jesus told. We must all be like that merchant, seeking the pearls of great price in the Scriptures. And how many know they're not on the surface? You have to dig down deep. You have to search thoroughly pour over examine meditate upon the word of god day and night make god's word a priority in your life hartley uh, Coleridge was an 18th century poet essayist and teacher and he divided readers into four classes listen the first type he compared to an hourglass their reading being as the sand it runs in and runs out and leaves no vestige behind the second type of reader resembles a sponge which gulps down everything and returns it nearly in the same state. The third type is what he called a jelly bag or a colander, which allows all that is pure to pass away and retains only the refuse and the dregs. The fourth type of reader is like a gold pan that's used for retaining the pure metal while all the refuse is washed out. May you and I be like a gold pan reader of the word of God, that we hide God's word in our heart, that it's sticking to our mind, our heart, our soul. It's changing the way we think, and it's changing the way we behave, and it's changing the things that we believe. It changes everything about our life from A to Z, from how we live and how we talk and how we vote and how we live our life. God's word is the final authority for all of us in what we believe and in what we practice. Can I get an amen in the house of God? I know it's summertime, (laughs) but we can't be on vacation, spiritually speaking. Amen.
All right, eagerness, examination number three, every noble, noble character. How is it built? How is it developed? Eagerness, examination number three, everydayness. Once again, verse 11, they examine the scriptures every day. Say that with me, every day. Say it again, every day. Why? To see if what Paul said was true. It sounds good. It so- you sound good. You look good. See, like today, famous preachers, they sound good. Oh, they look good. But what, are, what they're preaching, is it true? Oh, I don't care about that. That's the problem. Right? We got some famous preachers on podcasts, on TBN, on TV, in mega churches across the land. The most important question is not how cool are they, you know, you know but what, they, what they're saying. Do you know it to be true? Is it based on the Word of God, and are you verifying it for yourself? Eagerness, examination, and they did it every day. A story I came across a long time ago about a blind girl. And uh, thankfully, the, the day came when they, they made the Bible in Braille, and she was able to read the Bible in Braille. Problem was, she worked in a factory back then. She was blind. She, was, she worked in an assembly line in a factory. And the work that she did, it wore down her fingertips to the point where she could no longer read Braille. She was so desperate to read the Word of God, she peeled back the layer of skin on her fingers so she can get the sensation, the feeling back to read the Braille. But soon, soon, that didn't hold. And she realized she couldn't keep peeling back the layers of skin, and so she was going to kiss God's Word goodbye for a final time. With great sorrow, she would no longer be able to read and study God's Word. She said, but I've had it, and it's in my heart, and I've hid your Word in my heart, and I will cherish it always. I will find those that will read it to me. I will not ever be without your word. And she went to kiss her Bible. And when she did with her lips, she felt the braille. And she realized she could read the word of God with her lips. How eager, how how diligent are we in wanting to put God's word first in our lives and making it a priority in how we live our lives. May we love that word like she did every day. Eagerness, examination, everydayness, and and finally, number four. Number four, how do you develop noble character? Like the Bereans, not because of your race, not because of your culture, not because of your gender, not because of your social economic standing, but because of how you think and how you live and what you believe. If you are eager, if you examine, if you base your life on the Word of God, eagerness, examination, everydayness, and finally, number four, exactness. Once again, let's read verse 11. Let's read it out loud together. Here the Jews were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they welcomed the word very readily. Every day they studied the scriptures to check whether it was true. To check whether it was true. I know it sounds good. I know it might feel good. But is it true? We must base our life not on feeling, not on he looks good, she looks good, they sound good, they're funny, they're this, that's all great. But if what they're saying isn't true, if it's misleading people, if it's not based on the word of God, what is it, a big motivational service, a big entertainment moment in our lives? What we need more than anything, we need truth in a world filled with lies. And the final authority in truth is right here. This book, the Holy Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, you can count on it. Now listen, I want to close with this. There are many dangerous teachings circulating the body of Christ in the world today. 
Three in particular I want to draw attention to in closing. The first dangerous teaching is called hyper, the hyper-grace movement. The hyper-grace movement believes that when a person is saved and accepts Christ, at that moment, all your future sins are already automatically forgiven. It's called the hyper-grace movement. They literally, there's nothing new under the sun. It's antinomianism is a is a, 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 a philosophy. Antinomianism was addressed by the Apostle Paul in Romans 6, 7, and 8. Even in the time of the Apostle Paul, <laughs> there were those who believed if my sin produces God's grace, and the greater the sin, the greater the grace, these people actually believed that grace was a license to sin and encouraged people to live a sinful lifestyle because it would glorify God by allowing more of God's grace to be at work in your life. Let me know that doesn't make sense. You're smart people, right? Turn to your neighbor and say, you look smart. Are you as smart as you look? Yeah, you look smart, right? You know that can't be true, right? Like one great missionary said, nothing eludes the common Christian like common sense. Okay? That, you know that can't be true, right? And it's not true. So Paul, Paul, addressing that in Romans 6, he said, what? How can we who are dead to sin live any longer therein? <laughs> he said, yeah, grace, God's grace, where grace, sin abounds, grace does much more abound, but you've been changed. You've been transformed. You're no longer the person that you used to be. So even though you may still have struggles in your heart, that's not what you want to be. That's not what you want to do because you want to please Christ. You want to live for Christ. And you and I would never want to abuse the goodness of God and the grace of God by allowing and reducing God's grace to be a license to allow us to live any way we want to live because at the end of the day, God has already automatically forgiven us of all our past, present, and future sins. Now, whew, got that off my chest. Whew. <laughs> so, can God, will God forgive all your future sins? Absolutely. But you have to confess them. <laughs> if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's a, there's a resource book by Michael Brown called Hyper Grace. You can, you can pick that up if you want to read more about that. The second danger is those who believe in the fallibility of scriptures. We believe in the infallibility of the Word of God. Uh, we believe in the inerrancy uh, and the inherent truth that God's Word does not contain truth. God's Word is true from cover to cover. We believe that. Classical Christians believe that. It's non-negotiable. <clears throat> but there's a famous Atlanta preacher who recently said in a sermon that we need to unhitch from the Old Testament. He's getting a lot of flack for that, and he deserves it. He needs to, he needs to back, backtrack that, unhitch from the Old Testament. He went on to say in his message, the Bible is no more proof of Jesus' existence than a person's birth certificate is proof of his or hers existence. That just doesn't make sense. Why would somebody even go there? Listen, the only way we can know Jesus, the only way we can know him, there's, there's different manifestations of the revelation of God in the earth. One manifestation of the revelation of God is creation itself. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament show forth his handiwork. Day into day they utter speech, night unto night. Psalm 19. So the heavens do declare the glory of God. But we cannot fully know God by a sunrise or a sunset, by the moon, the stars, and all of that, right? It speaks of his glory. 
We cannot know God by some angel showing up and saying, here's who God is and here's what God wants you to believe because angels have been known to be wrong in the past. <laughs> One third of them rebelled against God, right? That's how the Mormon church started, by the way. Like an angel appeared to God, getting two sticks and, and all this other stuff, right? So the ultimate authority or revelation of God is not creation, it's not nature, it's not an angel, it's not a preacher, it's not a priest, it's not a church. The ultimate revelation of God is found in the book of Hebrews chapter 1 when the, when the writer of Hebrews says, God at various times and sundry ways spoke unto us through the prophets, but hath in these last days spoken unto us through his Son. The ultimate authority of who God is in the earth today is none other than the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the men that he appointed to tell the story. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the apostles, Paul the apostle that wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. The only way we can know Jesus and follow him and know his will and live for him is by what is written in the Word of God. It is the final authority. It is the ultimate revelation of God. Can we thank God for his eternal word? Heaven and earth will pass away, but not one word will ever pass away until all be fulfilled. And the final dangerous teaching that's not based on Scripture is cessationism. A cessationist is someone that does not believe in the, whole, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. There are well-meaning Christian people who say when John the Apostle died, because he traditionally is the last apostle to die, when he died, all the gifts of the Spirit ceased. They say, because that which is perfect, God's Word has come, we no longer need the gifts of the Holy Spirit. My friend, that's just not biblical. That's just not accurate, and they cannot defend that in the Word of God. God, the Lord our God, changes not. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. When God poured out the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost and the promise of Joel was fulfilled that in the last days God would pour out His Spirit upon all flesh, your sons and your daughters would prophesy, your old men would dream dreams, your young men would see visions on my handmaidens and on my male servants. I will pour out my Spirit in those days. God poured out his spirit in the book of Acts and he has not withdrawn the Holy Spirit yet the Holy Spirit is still here to fill us and to baptize us in the mighty power of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Holy Spirit are still available for believers today in particular the gift of praying in, in other tongues the gift of prophecy and interpretation of tongues Paul spent three chapters in the book of his first letter to the Corinthians, chapters 12, 13, and 14, talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, talking about the blessed gift of praying in the heavenly language. And yet you have well-meaning people make fun of it and mock it. They have to be careful that they don't commit blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, attributing a work of the Holy Spirit to the work of the devil. You have to be careful with that, my friend. You must be careful. The good news is, God is still pouring out His Spirit all over the world. And I'll tell you, people are being filled with the mighty Holy Spirit. 
God is still blessing men and women, his servants, with a heavenly prayer language so you can build yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. Jude, verse 20 says, Paul said, when I pray in the Spirit, I speak not unto men, unto God, whereby in the Spirit I speak divine secrets. It says in verse 4, he that speaks an unknown tongue edifies himself. The gift of tongues is not so much for public use unless it's accompanied by interpretation as it is for private use so that you can grow stronger in your faith so that you can pray the perfect will of God. Romans eight twenty six. when we don't know how to pray as we ought, the Spirit himself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered in our, in our articulate speech. I want you to know that the Spirit of God is real and the power of God is real and it's here and available for us today if we, like the Burian Christians, would become eager for the things of God, God would meet us and God would bless us. And as J.D. and was it Dusty were talking in the video, we can have the revival of God can begin to brew and stir once again in the United States of America as it did in Azusa Street at the turn of last century, and we can experience a mighty outpouring of God's power in our lives because that's what we need. That is what will make all the difference in the world. But be careful. When you begin to take your faith seriously, the world that wants you to be just average, just mediocre, when the world wants you to be just lukewarm enough in your face so that you'll be acceptable, when you throw off the garments of lukewarmness and you get red hot for Jesus, be careful because the world will not be too far behind you agitating you and persecuting you like those in Thessalonica who came to Paul in Berea because he was preaching the word of God. And the one thing the devil fears more than anything, it's not you, it's not me. It's the seed of God's word being planted in our hearts. That's why Jesus said, he, when the sower sows the seed, the fowls of the air, which is the devil, he comes immediately to snatch the word from your heart. All the persecutions and all the trials of life and all the spiritual battles you have or you will ever face, it's for one reason, not because you're that important, but because God's Word is important and the devil wants to steal that Word from your heart. That's why we need to take the Word of God and hide the Word of God in our hearts and never let the Word of God go and allow it to continue to transform our lives by the renewing of our minds. I'm just getting started, and i got to quit. Amen. Amen. <laughs> every head bowed, every eye closed. Lord, we humbly come before you, and we want to know that what's been taught today is true because it's based on the Word of God. May we all be committed to examine the Scriptures for ourselves. Lord, help us to be like the Berean Christians here at Trinity and the other churches in our community, to not discount the Word of God, but to make it a priority in all that we do. May we be, never lose our hunger for the Word of God, Lord. Be with your people today. And may we not just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. Heads bowed and eyes closed. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you need to commit or rededicate your life to Jesus, I'm going to ask you to pray this prayer out loud with the rest of us. Here we go. Dear God in heaven, I know I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. There's only one Savior. His name is Jesus. I call upon you, Jesus. I ask you now, Come into my heart. Come into my life. Be my Lord and be my Savior. I turn from sin to the true and living God.
I receive his love, his grace, and his forgiveness. Dear God in heaven, you're now my father, and I am your child. Fill me now with your Holy Spirit. Give me strength to live for you and serve you all the days of my life, beginning today for the rest of eternity. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Can we thank the Lord together, church family?